I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Hello and welcome back to all of our listeners uh, here in the States and across the seas. We're happy to have you back with us for another incredible story. And today is quite an incredible story. In fact, it's something that uh, is near and dear to my heart. I uh, grew up in New Mexico and uh, make no bones about it. I'm very proud of my New Mexico heritage and the history that goes into that state. And today we are going to be sharing a wonderful story, an exciting story, about uh, a local hero uh, from the Wild West. And it doesn't just end there. No, it doesn't just end with the fact that uh, I grew up in the state where he was uh, so famous for, for doing what he did. But we also have a family connection uh, to this person. Not that we're related, but because you got to meet somebody related to the person we're going to be talking about today. Isn't that right, Dad? Yes, it is, Gary. And, you know, I've often told you that I believe that everybody has a story to tell, all of us. Oh, absolutely. Everyone who is listening into this podcast now uh, has a story that's important, has a story worth telling. Um, I've been especially fond of uh, seeking out senior citizens, uh, people in their 70s and 80s, because they have a wealth of experience behind them. Mm. And so often, Gary, there's nobody around who really wants to take time to listen to them. I think that's very true. In fact, I guarantee you, if most people uh, took the opportunity to volunteer at a, uh, a nursing home or a retirement home, they would be shocked at the number of amazing stories they would walk away with. Yeah, they're all around us, too. Uh, We're bumping into people in the uh, supermarket who uh, probably have incredible stories, but uh, so often these stories are never recorded, and they're lost to history when the person passes away. But back uh, in the mid-1980s, shortly before you were born, Mm -hmm. I came across a tall and lanky gentleman who was living in a small apartment in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he was almost 80 years old at that time. Oh, oh, and he seemed to be in excellent health, by the way. Like most seniors. Mm, yes, he he'd enjoyed golfing. Uh, golfing was one of his favorite pastimes. Uh, but I, I did notice that whenever we decided to go somewhere, he preferred that I do the driving. So uh, his name uh, was Jarvis P. Garrett. And believe it or not, Gary, he was the youngest son of Sheriff Pat Garrett, and Sheriff Pat Garrett was one of the most famous lawmen in the history of the Wild West. Yes, well, this comes no surprise uh, as no surprise to me because this is a story that I am deeply familiar with and one that I've heard uh, numerous uh, times. But what I'm curious about is that uh, I, I'm pretty sure you weren't just walking around uh, different places talking to old people, uh, trying to find the stories. How did you actually come across Jarvis Garrett? Actually, I had read a book called Pat Garrett, and it was written by a gentleman named Leon G. Metz. 
And so um, I was uh, collecting autographs at the time, and I said, wow, this would be a, an interesting person to get to meet and chat with and, mm -hmm. and ask for an autograph in the process. And so I called him up, and he was um, more than uh, willing to meet with me, and I ended up uh, having him uh, speak to a uh, group of students. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I did was I recorded that presentation right which is what we have with us today so folks who are listening to the show you'll actually get to hear the story from jarvis as was told to him by his mother um, who got everything from his father yes uh, because jarvis was uh, only two and a half years old when his father himself was murdered back in 1908 right so most of what he shared with me of course, he couldn't remember from his father. It was handed down to him, uh, you know, from his mother. Exactly. Now, uh, to that point, uh, that sets up for the series, the two-part series on this, because uh, today we're going to explore how Pat Garrett found Billy the Kid and uh, brought him to justice. And then we are going to explore the story of what happened to Pat Garrett and the conspiracy behind is murder. Yes. So this is a, um, a story of a Western lawman and a murder story, too, told in two episodes. So Absolutely. That part will, will come next week. Uh, so in any event, uh, we do want to uh, warn our listeners that uh, this tape that you're going to hear snippets from uh, is more than 35 years old. It wasn't recorded under professional conditions. So you're going to hear some background noise. You're, it's going to sound a tad muffled. It's not the usual quality you'd expect in a professional broadcast. But the trade-off is this. You will hear part of this story told tonight in the actual words of the son of the man who's the central hero of the story. Yeah. So basically, you're going to hear... What Pat Garrett, who, who there have been many movies made about, you're going to hear what really happened, not what Hollywood said. And I know that Jarvis was very vocal about how he felt that Hollywood never did his father justice in, in the stories that they told. So you'll hear the real story um, straight from a family member of yes, yes. Sheriff Pat uh, Garrett. Sheriff Pat Garrett's son, in fact. Mm -hmm. And uh, you mentioned Hollywood, Gary. Uh, there was a movie, um, I think it was in the 1950s, starring Paul Newman called The Left-Handed Gun. And so everybody believed that Billy the Kid was left-handed. That's the first thing, one of the first things that Jarvis told me was actually fiction. He said, Billy the Kid wasn't left-handed, as everybody believes. He was right-handed. <laughs> so... <clears throat> Uh, Jarvis uh, set the historical record uh, straight in a number of ways, including which hand was Billy the Kid's dominant hand. Right, and I believe in one of the films they portrayed his father as a, a, a stout uh, man who uh, wasn't as agile. And his father, I believe he said that he was a very tall man and uh, was a dancer. Yes. Uh, so he was, he was quite the athlete uh, and very uh, nimble on his toes and a very tall, thin man. And Jarvis said uh, his dad was a quiet, handsome man. And I believe he was uh, quiet because uh, when you listen to Jarvis, you'll hear how soft-spoken he is, which is one of the reasons it's a little difficult to listening in. He was very soft-spoken, and he said his dad was too. Right. Uh, but he also said that uh, his dad, Sheriff Pat Garrett, was uh, six feet, four and a half inches tall. That's pretty tall. 
Uh, he was very slender. Jarvis said he moved with a cat-like rhythm. And like you mentioned, he was quite the dancer. So that's not really how Hollywood has portrayed him. No, no, it's not. But again, we're talking the real deal, not Hollywood. Exactly. So uh, Jarvis uh, had a, I had an incident uh, with uh, Jarvis that I absolutely loved. Um, when I was sitting there uh, in his uh, apartment for the first time, he told me that in some of his travels, people didn't believe that he was the son of Pat Garrett. Right. Yeah, they said, you know, you must be the grandson because it's 1980s and Pat Garrett was in the 1880s. Right, we're talking about 1984 mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. 1881. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. yeah, but Jarvis started carrying around his birth certificate. And back then, uh, in those days, uh, 1906, when uh, Jarvis was born, uh, 1905, 1906, um, the father filled out the birth certificate. So the birth certificate that he showed me, and Gary, I actually held this birth certificate in my hand. That, the certificate <laughs> signed by Pat Garrett. Yep, Pat F. Garrett, and uh, all filled out by Garrett. All the, you know, the lines, including Jarvis's name. Right, and he even had the uh, insurance policy, his New York life insurance policy. Oh, yeah, and Jarvis had a twinkle in his eye, and he, he really, he, he and I really uh, hit it off uh, well, and so he said, uh, would you like to see what's inside this treasure chest? And there was this little treasure chest sitting in front of his fireplace. Yeah. I said, sure. And he said, you know, I didn't even bother to show that to Leon Metz, <laughs> the author who interviewed yeah. him for the, for the book. And so he opened the chest, and oh my gosh, the things he pulled out just were mind-boggling. And one of them was the uh, New York um, you know, insurance policy, once again, uh, life insurance policy signed by uh, Pat F. Garrett, and I recognized the signature because I was a document collector, so I recognized the signature right away. Sure. And so it was just thrilling to go through, you know, Sheriff Pat Garrett's effects uh, in that treasure chest. How surreal. Ooh, yeah, yeah. So uh, anyhow, let's go uh, get into the story that uh, Jarvis told. Um, when his mother started telling Jarvis um, all of the family stories. Uh, Jarvis was a teenager, and he was working as an usher in the movie theaters. Now, if my math is correct, Gary, uh, Jarvis was a teenager in the early 1920s, so he must right. have been an usher during the silent movie period. What do you think? Yeah, silent films came in, uh, or, well, were back in the 1900s, late 1800s, 1900s, and then talkies started coming in during the 20s. Mm -hmm. So... It would have been around the time where silent was going out and the talking films were coming in. Yeah, or right before, right before the advent of sound. So there he was working as an usher in those old-timey uh, movie theaters. And so, like I mentioned, I recorded all of these things uh, back in the uh, 1980s when Jarvis was about 80. And... Um, his only recollection of his father's death was a few vague memories of the wake that was held in the family home back in 1908. So most of the impressions of his father most certainly were shaped by his mother in his uh, later years. So before we get to the point where he killed Billy the Kid, what transpired before that? What, what led to him being killed? Uh, what happened was um, Billy the Kid... Uh, was arrested for a murder he committed during the Lincoln County War. He killed Sheriff uh, William Brady in, in mm -hmm. Lincoln. 
And so there was a warrant for his arrest. Pat Garrett was able to arrest him and bring him to the Lincoln County Jail. And I tell you what, Gary, let's have Jarvis pick up the story from there. My father had heard the kid had just escaped just, uh, oh, about, uh, let's see, April the 28th of 1881. He'd escaped from the Lincoln County Jail where he killed my father's two deputies. It was Deputy Bob Ollinger was killed and Jim Bell was killed. And my father had assigned them to, uh, to guard Billy the Kid until May the 13th. All righty, so uh, what happened there was uh, uh, Pat Garrett was out collecting taxes in White Oaks in his buggy. That was one of the official duties of the sheriff back then. And so he was collecting taxes on the day that Billy the Kid broke out of his jail and killed his two deputies. Right. Now, when he rode back into town in his buggy down that uh, one-lane street, and you've been there, you know exactly what Oh, I know what Lincoln looks like, yeah. Uh, he spotted the body of um, Bob Ollinger still laying out there in the street, and Jim Bell had been shot behind the jail, and, and his body was still there. And so uh, when Pat Garrett pieced the story together that somehow Billy the Kid had escaped, um, he made up his mind then and there that uh, he was going to go after Billy the Kid and there was going to be justice. Absolutely. So um, one of his deputies was named John Poe. So when John Poe told uh, Pat Garrett that Billy the Kid might be holed up in Fort Sumner, Garrett thought the idea didn't have very much merit. The gossip of the day, uh, Gary, uh, was that Billy the Kid was hiding in old Mexico, which is on the border of New Mexico, so that would not be hard to believe. No, I mean, you're, you're get out literally... Get out of the country. Yeah. Get out of the country and escape the law. If we were driving there, New Mexico is literally just a few mm -hmm. hours and in some cases only minutes away from Mexico. Right. So, uh, you know, for the kid to actually be hiding right under the New Mexico lawmen's noses was, was pretty much unthinkable at the time. But nevertheless, Poe told Garrett that uh, while he was in White Oaks, that was collecting taxes, as I mentioned, uh, a source he trusted brought a message from Pete Maxwell in Fort Sumner. Now, the source allegedly claimed that Maxwell was irate over the fact that the kid was starting to look with favor on Maxwell's sister, Paulita. And according to Leon Metz, the writer of the book that I read, Mm-hmm. Uh, the kid was also said to be romancing a local girl named Celsa Gutierrez, whose husband Zaval apparently didn't mind. But Jarvis told me <clears throat> he wasn't so sure about that romantic tidbit, Gary. Why is this? Here's what uh, none of the historians knew. Jarvis was telling me this, and it hadn't apparently been picked up by any of the researchers or historians. Celsa Gutierrez was actually... Pat Garrett's wife's sister. So it was his sister-in-law, Pat Garrett's sister-in-law. That's right. And she was blonde and blue-eyed, and, and uh, you know, she took very much after uh, Jarvis's uh, grandmother. So think about this for a second. It seems very far-fetched to me that a ruthless outlaw would romance the sister-in-law of the manhunter who was pursuing him. That sounds crazy. 
Well, I guess it does, but if you are thinking about it in the context of when things may have been happening, this may have been before a lot of the other events that led up to his arrest and escape from Lincoln. Yeah, Yeah, so I I just wonder how many of those historians really knew of Celsus' family ties to the uh, Garrett family. I mean, it's possible. But uh, whatever the ultimate reason, Pat Garrett half-heartedly decided to check out Fort Sumner. And just for good measure... Uh, he and John Poe rode to Roswell to pick up a third man, manhunter. Uh, his name was Thomas L. Tip McKinney. Now, McKinney also thought the idea of the kid hiding in Fort Sumner was a long shot. But he agreed to go along. Uh, Jarvis picks up the story from here, Gary. My dad had heard of the possibility that he was somewhere in the area of Fort Sumner. Uh, there were stories that had gone to Mexico and so forth and that he left the country. But my dad, with his two deputies, John W. Pole and Pitt McKinney, uh, left Roswell for Fort Sumner. And uh, in those days, you know, they used to ride by horse, horseback, and it took hours to get anywhere. <laughs> so. Uh, They left there on the 10th of July and arrived on the 13th, three days later, in Fort Sumner. So there you are. Now, uh, in Fort Sumner, uh, what was happening, there was a festival going on. There was music. There was dancing. Everything was really in full swing in town that night. So the lawmen decided to stay clear of Fort Sumner because strangers were sure to be noticed by that uh, festive gathering of people. So around midnight, Pat Garrett decided to drop in on Pete Maxwell to see what he knew. Uh, the lawmen arrived at Maxwell's place, which was a one-story adobe building. It had a, a porch surrounding three sides. The front door to Pete's bedroom was standing open in order to allow whatever breeze might be blowing to come in and cool down the, the inside. So that was uh, 19th century air conditioning, I guess. Leave your front door open and let the breeze blow through. Well, you know what? It was common back then, but it's very common now. I remember as a kid, whenever we would stay at Grandma and Grandpa's house, you leave the windows open and let that breeze come in because the desert, for those of you who have never lived in the desert, during the day it may be incredibly hot, but at nighttime the temperatures can drop and it gets quite cool and you get that breeze coming through. It's uh, it's nice. Mm-hmm. So um, as Pat Garrett was about to step into that darkened bedroom, Gary, his deputies were lounging outside. Uh, McKinney found a a spot near the picket fence. Poe stationed himself near the edge of the porch. No sign of Billy the Kid, uh, and and they didn't really expect to to find any either. Now, a short time before, however, Billy the Kid, who was indeed in Fort Sumner and who had been enjoying the fiesta that was going on in town, at the Garcia home, he decided to head back to the sheep camp where he had been living in hiding. Now, for some unexplained reason he turned his horse around and headed back to town and he stopped in his on his old friend bob campbell and he told bob uh, he was hungry bob tossed him a knife and told billy there's a side of beef hanging off of pete maxwell's porch and that is how billy the kid decided to head for pete maxwell's house and have his rendezvous with destiny and sheriff pat garrett uh, my dad uh, 
sent uh, his deputy, Mr. Poe, who wasn't known in the Fort Sumner area, to go to Sunnyside, which was uh, right near Fort Sumner itself, and talk to Milner Rudolph to see if he knew of anything about the whereabouts of Baron King. He went there, and uh, Mr. Rudolph did not know anything that happened. And they had arranged to meet at a place at the peach orchard called La Glorieta, which was not too far uh, from here, from where Pete and Michael lived. So they met there about nine o'clock at night, and uh, along about close to midnight, my father decided to go over and talk to Pete Maxwell, the man that's standing out here in front. Well, he had no sooner sat down when this man entered the room in his stocking feet, carrying a knife in one hand and his gun in the other. And because he'd seen that he probably drew his gun when he saw the two men sitting outside. And uh, as he entered the room, he was addressing Pete, and he said, Quien es son? Quien es son? Then he moved uh, right uh, to the bed where Mr. Maxwell was, uh, was uh, in bed, and my dad was sitting, and he almost touched my father's uh, knee. And then he moved back. He moved back. Uh, when he recognized the presence of a third person. And as he moved back, Pete whispered to my father, that's him, meaning that they're the kid. So my father leaned to one side, hoping that uh, he would be wounded, you know, and not killed outright, and drew his gun and fired twice. The, he only needed to have fired once because the first impact bullet went through the kid's heart and he died and he was dead instantly in that mortal wound. Now Jarvis uh, told me that he felt that his father was very lucky in that uh, showdown. Um, and why was that? The, well, he said this was the first time in his life that Billy the Kid was known to have hesitated. And Jarvis told me, these are his exact words, that hesitation cost him his life. So I followed up uh, uh, on that with Jarvis. I, why would Billy the Kid hesitate that fateful night? I think that's a fair question. I mean, this was somebody who did not trust lawmen, and if he saw people outside that seemed suspicious, why wouldn't he have fired his gun? Exactly. Now, <clears throat> here's Jarvis's theory. He doesn't uh, know for sure any more than we do, but he had a theory. So since he's the son of this lawman and he's heard his mother's tales of what his father said, did, and thought, right. we have to give this some credence. Sure. So according to Jarvis, <clears throat> Pat Garrett told his wife that he believed the kid thought the other man in Maxwell's bedroom was a friend of Pete Maxwell's named Manuel Abreu one of Pete's Mexican friends, Manuel Abreu. Now, Abreu was a local rancher, and I believe the Abreu family still lives in this area today. Um, and he was also known by the kid. So Manuel Abreu was known to uh, 
Pete Maxwell and also to Billy the Kid. So since Garrett was seated, his tall height didn't betray him. So a mistaken identity in that very darkened room and hesitation made the difference between who lived and who died that fateful night. And it might have been the kid thinking that that shadow belonged to Manuel Abreu and not the manhunter, Sheriff Pat Garrett. So that just that moment of uh, not being sure if it was a friend or somebody else cost him his life. Cost him his life. And that is, of course, what Jarvis says, and it's very believable to me, too. Now, this didn't have the Hollywood movie ending. It didn't end with this uh, shootout uh, and the smoking guns uh, being holstered. Uh, once those shots were fired, Gary, Pete Maxwell and Pat Garrett ran out of the room. In fact, they were running so hard, they knocked down John Poe. Uh, and according to Java, Jarvis, uh, my father saved Pete Maxwell's life by yelling, don't shoot, don't shoot, that's Pete. Now, when John Poe heard Garrett's account of the shooting, he panicked. The last place in the world he expected to meet up with Billy the Kid was at the Maxwell house. Pat, you killed the wrong man. Why did he think he killed the wrong man? He's, he just couldn't get wrap his mind around the possibility that Billy the Kid was in uh, Fort Sumner, New Mexico, there at uh, Pete Maxwell's house. But Garrett and Maxwell, they were sure it was the kid, but neither one of them knew if he were dead. So nobody wanted to enter back into the house. Maybe he'd only been wounded. Because they'd end up getting shot. Yeah, exactly. And maybe he was waiting to ambush him if they returned to the room. Uh, but then uh, Poe and Maxwell both claimed that, uh, to hear a death rattle. And so... Uh, Pat Garrett located a candle somewhere. He peered into the window, and then he, that's when he saw the kid lying dead on the floor. Butcher knife in one hand, revolver in the other. And as Jarvis told us, the first, first shot killed Billy the Kid. The second one went wild, uh, possibly into a washstand. So there you have it, Gary. This is a fantastic story of the Wild West, partially told today by the son of the man who created that story. I think it's fantastic. Being actually able to hear somebody connected to this moment in history really does bring a reality to it that you can't get when you're just listening to somebody tell the story. It's one thing when you tell the story. It's another thing to hear the story told by a surviving family member. But the interesting thing is, is that Pat Garrett's story does not end here. No. Decades later, Pat Garrett would find himself on the other side of a gun, where he would meet his end at the hands of an assassin, a mystery assassin. Ooh. But we won't <laughs> find out about that till next time. So until next time, I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And this was an incredible story.